to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. Before we get to today's episode, I have a few quick notes, um, a little bookkeeping just on the show to just quickly get through. Firstly, I've not given up on the Libertarianism series. Um, I'm going to do a finale of that in a couple of weeks. It's just taking a bit longer than expected to pull together all of the quotes and stuff I want to make that what I want it to be. So that'll still be coming after this series. Um, And if you haven't checked it out, I took a break from interviewing to do a history of the ideology of libertarianism from around the 1860s to I'm going to end it in the 1950s. So that's in the stream. Check that out. Um, Next, um, uh, Patreon supporters might notice that Um, The posts are a little different this time, so I normally just post to Patreon whenever the episode is out. I'm going to post all of this month's episodes at once, probably later today or tomorrow. That won't affect the way you're billed at all. So if you're financially supporting the show on Patreon, you'll see four episodes pop up at once. You'll still get charged the same amount, and you'll still get charged at the same time, i.e. the first of the month. So feel free to contact me directly if you have any questions or concerns about that. My email's on the website. Finally, I'm not going to address it here, but I've been causing some controversy on Twitter. Um, I said... Um, a few things about why I probably wouldn't vote for Bernie Sanders in the 2016 primary. And I did a quick poll, and apparently the majority of my audience are Bernie supporters, so I took some flack for that. I got a bunch of negative comments. I'm not going to dwell on any of that here, except to say this. I think for historical and ideological and structural reasons, it is harder for the left to maintain unity than it is for the right. And I don't want to be an exacerbating factor in what's looking to be potentially a very contentious primary. So I said before, during, and after that although Bernie isn't my first choice, I will absolutely 1000% support him should he win. And indeed, there's there's circumstances I could see myself voting for him, like, you know, maybe if it came down to him or Biden or something like that. There are circumstances I could see myself voting for him in the primary. And... Hopefully, I would appeal to to Bernie supporters who are mad at me for saying I thought, you know, there was elements of sexism and so on in his campaign, that to, to do the same in return. Let's agree to disagree about specific candidates in the primary, but let's not have this become so contentious that we can't all get behind someone um, once it's over. And I absolutely include myself in that. So... I'm not going to rehash all of the controversy and all of the sort of negative stuff people said about me. I'm just going to say, let's not have this go so far that we can't all get behind a candidate at the end. So that's my appeal there. And I'll, you know, at some point before the thing's over, I'll probably do an episode on the varying ideologies and political philosophies that are at play, you know, in the New Democratic Party. Um maybe suggest some good guests for me for that. Um, I also, by the way, um, if there's any really good, articulate, uh, thoughtful Bernie supporters, I'm not at all against having one on, not to do a debate, but, you know, see if we can resolve some of the confusion and concerns that both sides of that have. 
So that's that. For today's episode, um, Dale Martin will be back on and will be covering gender in the New Testament. So Dale Martin's been on the show before and we discussed uh, Paul as a historical figure and a figure in the history of political thought. And then we also got on to a much more freeform conversation about Christianity in general, about my atheism, about Dale Martin's postmodern foundations for his own Christian belief. And I titled that episode Postmodern Christianity, so that's in the first series. Please feel free to go back and check that out. And it became one of our most popular episodes. Um, I've heard from a lot of um, Christians who really liked that episode and thought it was really important for them, as well as um, atheists who liked it a lot. So I've been wanting to have Dale Martin back on for some time, and we arranged some time, and we took on something very different this time, talking about gender and gender expression and various ideas of, you know, a gender spectrum and um, people who don't identify as either gender in the New Testament. So I just read his book, Sex and the Single Saviour, and I really recommend that one, and we got into all of that today. This is very different from anything we've brought you before, and I hope you find it as interesting and fascinating as I did. So if you didn't catch the um, first series we did with Professor Martin, Dale Martin um, taught at Yale in New Testament and Christian Origins, and before being at Yale, he was at Rhodes College and Duke University. His single-authored books include Slavery as Salvation, The Metaphor of Slavery in Pauline Christianity, The Corinthian Body, Inventing Superstition, Sex and the Single Saviour, which is the topic of today's conversation, uh, Pedagogy in the Bible, An Analysis and Proposal, and New Testament History and Literature. He's published many, many articles on topics relating to the ancient family, gender and sexuality in the ancient world, and the ideology of modern biblical scholarship. He's currently working on issues in biblical interpretation, social history and religion in the Greco-Roman world, and in sexual ethics. He is also the presenter of the YouTube series, um, or the Yale Open Courses series, uh, New Testament History and Literature, which I mistakenly said... Um, was in the hundreds of thousands of views in this interview. It's actually in the millions. On YouTube alone, it has four million views. And um, in other um, arenas, it um, has more still. And I do recommend that. If um, the sort of several hours of me chatting with Dale Martin on this show isn't enough, there's a full 26 lecture series that anyone can participate in for free. And I've done it, and I recommend other people do it. It's really, truly fantastic. So, yeah, without any further preamble, let's get into today's show. This is the first part of a two-parter on gender in the New Testament with Professor Dale Martin. So 
So I'm joined today by Professor Dale Martin. Dale, thanks for coming back on. Thank you. So you've been on before, but for people who didn't catch that, um, do you want to just introduce yourself, um, what you do and write about, that sort of thing? Okay. Uh, I am a retired professor uh, of religious studies. I taught for 11 years at Duke University in a secular religious studies department. I taught for 18 years at Yale University in another secular religious studies department. So I've never really taught in seminaries and divinity schools. In other words, not preparing ministers for the ministry, but mostly teaching undergraduates and college students and PhD students. Uh, so even though I've taught New Testament studies mostly and the history of ancient Christianity, and I've done a lot of work on the Greco-Roman world and the ancient Mediterranean, I've published on slavery, the household, uh, biblical studies, uh, interpretation theory, literary theory, uh, sociological theory. Um, but probably most people would know me for my books on the New Testament, either Paul or other kinds of writings on family and sexuality in the New Testament. As well as your um, YouTube series, you have the Yale Open Courses for the New Testament. Yes, actually simply 26 recordings of the 26 lectures that I've given for years at Yale um, as an undergraduate course, and it was Introduction to the New Testament History and Literature. And they, they just brought a, it wasn't specially done, they just brought a camera and a microphone into my lecture hall and on Mondays and Wednesdays and just recorded what I was doing in front of a class of about, at that time it was about 75 students sitting in the classroom. Did you have any idea it was going to get as, I mean, you're not really on social media, but like, did you realize it was going to be as big as it was and get like, I mean, it's got like hundreds of thousands of views on YouTube. Yeah, well, that's some of my friends say things like that, but I don't know what that means. I don't know what hundreds of thousands means on social media. You know, the books, my, my, there's a, there's a published book based on those lectures also called New Testament History and Literature published by Yale Press. And it's basically simply me turning those lectures into written chapters. It hasn't sold a great deal. Um, so I don't see a lot of money in this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's more just like it's kind of cool to know that your thing has got out there to that many people. Um, I, think, could... I, I don't really understand. But part of the thing was when Yale recorded the lectures. This is all a part of a big project at Yale called uh, Open Yale Courses. And there's all these different topics in chemistry and physics and history and everything. So they just record them and they just put them free. I think part of the thing is that they're just out there free. And most people actually don't get them from the Open Yale Courses site. Although I encourage people to do so because if they go to the Open Yale Courses site and look at and download the lectures, they can also download the printed materials for the course, like the syllabus and transcripts and, you know, handouts that I gave out to the students, whereas you can't get any of that through YouTube. But it seems like they these courses, these lectures very quickly were picked up, not just by YouTube, but there's a thing called academia or Academics. They, they, yeah, they send me emails and I ignore them. Um, yeah, a, I, I know what you mean. There are several other places that people can go online. 
to access these lectures, either just the audio or the visual and the audio. The only place they can actually get the handouts and the written materials is from Open Yale courses. Which, so, yeah, I mean, which is how I found you. And I do, I, I mean, I think Open Yale courses are great just from my own selfish perspective. I've, I've done a bunch of them at this point. Um, like anyone yeah, can go on and learn anything, you know? It's great. I mean, anybody in the world, I've, got, I've gotten emails from high school kids in some little poor place in South America who said, we've been watching your lectures and we really appreciate this. Uh, it's it's like having it's for free for crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is what a lot of people are playing, paying good money for. And you can get all these lectures from, from several different disciplines just for free. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And they're great. And I do recommend those that actually sort of leads me in to um doing this interview is i sort of wanted to cover gender and sexuality in the new testament but i sort of want to sneak up on it a bit because i until i mean this was your course that helped me make sense of it but as someone who's coming from christianity from, from the outside making sense of what the heck is going on has been a challenge and if there's been two central things, both of which I got from you, that have made a lot of this stuff make sense. It's one, knowing the chronology the books were written in. Like, that simple thing has been huge. Um, And then the other is that there's not, to the ancient mind, this natural-supernatural divide that we project back onto it. And then then so you have to process, like, the whole resurrection thing as a physical process which isn't how we think about it now but in terms of like getting some idea of what these people were writing about those two things have been absolutely huge for me at least at least getting out of the gutter you know what i mean so could we start with a simplified chronology so I'll, i'll start you off at around the year 30 there was this guy called jesus who was executed and about 15 years later we get an educated Greek-speaking Jew writing letters to churches about that. Do you want to take it from there? Most of the scholars would say that Paul, the apostle, um, who was a Greek-speaking Jew, may he was not a follower of Jesus during Jesus' lifetime. So he, he doesn't count as an apostle according to some definitions of apostle, like for Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles defines an apostle as someone who was with Jesus during his lifetime, a follower of Jesus. Well, Paul doesn't count that way. But ironically, in Christian history, he almost became the apostle par excellence. In fact, when you see church fathers talk about the apostle, they mean Paul. Um, and he thought he was an apostle, but when he called himself an apostle, it was because apostle just meant then someone who's a missionary, basically someone who's going out to preach and try to convert people. Apostle just comes from the Greek word, someone who is sent out. And he believed he was sent out, not the Jerusalem church or any other church or any other apostles. He believes he was sent out by Jesus. And, and so we think that he probably became a follower of Jesus around the year 34 or 35. So really only four or five years after the death of Jesus. I tend to place the death of Jesus at 30, although these are all just guesses. And we tend to place the writing of his letters before and after the year 50, so right around 50. So 20 years after the death of Jesus, Paul is writing his letters. Now, only seven of the letters in the New Testament 
that claim to be by Paul are actually by Paul. Uh, uh, Colossians and Ephesians and Second Thessalonians and First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, a lot of us critical scholars would say they're not really by Paul. They're from Paul's followers or disciples. And the reason we make we make these decisions not on the basis of theology, although there are differences in theology, but mainly it's writing style. I tell my students sometimes, you know, I I can tell when you're plagiarizing in your papers because all of a sudden the style changes. And I can tell, oh, this is Wikipedia. You know, this is not this student's style. Um, and that's the way we scholars try to discern what parts of Paul, the New Testament are actually by Paul and what are not. So, But if you take his seven letters uh, that most students would call the – most scholars would call the undisputed letters, uh, which would be Romans, First and Second Corinthians, uh, Philippians – Philemon, First Thessalonians, I may be forgetting something, but um, those are the earliest writings we have of early Christianity, and they're from about 20 years after the death of Jesus. And then you get Mark as the gospel, the first earliest gospel written, and it's probably written right around the year 70. And we say that because the details that that gospel talks about about the destruction of Jerusalem don't fit what actually happened in the destruction of Jerusalem, but they're close. And then we say Matthew and Luke obviously both used the Gospel of Mark as one of their sources, and they used other sources too, both written and oral sources. But if they were using the Gospel of Mark as one of their written sources, well, then we say, okay, let's put them maybe 10 years or so after that, so in the 80s. And then the Gospel of John just sounds like it's later. The Gospel of John sounds like it kind of knows maybe Mark, maybe Luke, um, maybe all three of the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But we just say the Gospel of John looks like it has a much more highly developed view of Christ as divine, Christology. And so we place the Gospel of John in the 90s or something like that. And then so, you know, we place these these documents in the chronological sequence basically based on who used what, who, which one of them knew one of the others, uh, and on a sequence of both writing style and development of theology. Which is what's fun about the New Testament, right, is it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle in that you just have this list of things that isn't in the order it was written. And apart from Paul, they're eponymous, right? Like we generally... They're, they're written in the name of someone, but we don't know the identity of the people who wrote the Gospels, right? No, I think all four of the Gospels, um, the names that became attached to the four Gospels became attached to them sometime in the second century. And we can tell that both by internal evidence of the documents themselves, but also by manuscript evidence. Um, when do other Christians start calling these Gospels by these names. And it's not really until the middle or the late second century. So sometime in the 200s, not the 200s, sometime in the 100s. So 150, 160, 170. That's when the names get attached. Yes. 
And when was Revelations written? That is actually, it's the last book in the New Testament, and it is one of the later ones written, right? Well, that's a huge debate. Oh, okay. Because some scholars want to place it, they want to say that the book of Revelation tends to, and we should say it's Revelation, not Revelations. People, popular press get that wrong all the time. It's just the revelation of John. Um, It's pretty clear that one of the figures being referred to in Revelation is Nero, the Emperor Nero. And that makes some people want to put the writing of Revelation either in the 60s, because Nero was ruling in the early 60s, but other people say, well, he's talking about what we call Nero Redivivus. That is, he's referring to Nero who's been dead, and he's being resurrected and coming back to life as a demonic kind of figure. And so um, people place that in the 90s or around 100. So uh, different scholars would place the writing of Revelation anywhere from 64 which would make it one of the earliest ones. That would put yes. it there with Paul. It would make it one of the earliest ones. I don't buy that. I think that it probably comes from the 90s or later. And there are some people who would even put the writing of Revelation well back into the, the second century. That's what I had in my head, but like, I, that's not based on anything. That's just what I had in my head. Um, and the problem with Revelation is that it's not even included in some of the early canon lists of the New Testament. Hmm. So does that mean that it's late? Or does that mean that it just was considered too weird to fit among Scripture? I remember reading, um, that's an aside, but some of the people who argued for it, even the ones who were arguing for it, was a, were aware it was different and a bit of a curveball. For- oh, yeah, it's quite different. But that's, it's not different from ancient literature in general. It's just that uh, it fits perfectly well within what scholars call the genre of apocalyptic literature. Uh, in fact, we get the term apocalyptic from the Revelation of John, because that's the Greek name, is the apocalypse of John. And then we take that word, the apocalypse, which just means the revealing the unveiling. Uh, and then we apply that backwards to the book of Daniel uh, in the Hebrew Bible and say, well, that's also apocalyptic literature. But uh, And we apply it also to other literature from the second century, like the apocalypse of Peter, the apocalypse of Paul. But these are all titles that scholars tend to give these writings. Um, and we've borrowed the term apocalypse and apocalyptic from Revelation. But the idea of um, a, a sort of coming end is that's there in um, that's there in um, Paul, right? Like the, the idea that um, there's going to we, we are sort of nearing this end zone where the, the, the dead will be resurrected and all of that. It's not in the same vividness of detail, but that's from the earliest writings as well. Yes. Uh, most scholars would say the very earliest piece of literature we have from early Christianity is Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. And in chapters 4 and 5 in 1 Thessalonians talks about the coming of Jesus at the end. 
Which brings me to the next point that sort of helped me make sense of what the heck this guy's talking about, which is there's not, for Paul, or perhaps even for the society in general, there's not a strict natural-supernatural divide. When he's talking about resurrected Jesus, when he's talking about the coming resurrection of the dead, he is talking about the physical resurrection of bodies, right? Yes. And... The, the reason I've argued that we should dispense with the notion of the supernatural is that just about everybody in the ancient world, everybody I can think of until maybe the year 500, assumed that if gods exist, and I can't find anybody in the ancient world who's a complete atheist by the modern sense, they all assume that some gods exist. You might just debate about which gods people believe exist, really exist. But if you believe gods exist, you believe they exist in nature, not outside of nature. So the Greek word for nature is phusis. And the earliest I've been able to find any Latin or Greek term that could reasonably be translated as supernatural is around the year 500 with the writings of the person we call Pseudo-Dionysius. He published his writings as Dionysius the Areopagite, who's in the Book of Acts as a companion of Paul. But he was, it wasn't by Dionysius. It's some Christian writer around the year 500. And he actually has a Greek term that he uses, huperfusis, which strictly could be translated supernatural, above nature. But that's the earliest I've found of any of that kind of language. All the Greek and Roman philosophers when they talk about nature, Thusis, they assume that gods are there within nature. And even with Christian orthodoxy, people will talk about angels as being supernatural beings, but that's actually kind of heretical because every the only being who is uncreated, according to Christian orthodoxy, is God. Everything else in the universe, God created. So if you call angels not part of nature, you're saying they're not part of the created order. And that's heretical, because you're making them equal to God. And so angels, he, angels are physical beings in the Bible, right? And I, certainly. That's, this is the thing, though, in the modern world, they aren't. This is the problem with this whole notion of supernatural. A lot of it goes back to Rene Descartes, who wanted to say that the mind and the soul are not part of nature at all but that's nothing there's there's no element of that when paul talks about the resurrected bodies right and we translate it so, so this is a weird way of sneaking up on galatians three twenty eight, but i think it lays the groundwork for like what he's actually talking about when he talks about resurrection and spirits we're reading that anachronistically right he's talking when he talks about the resurrection of a body he's talking about a physical resurrection now the physical body you end up with he tells us is different to the um body that you died in but it, it, it's um what's the metaphor it's like a seed and a flower it's something that grows out of it that is contiguous with it although distinct from it and the spirit thing i got from you directly translates to puma right it's pneumatic so it is a substance it's not a substance like flesh but it is a you, your 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 body will be resurrected in a different substance but a physical one nonetheless which is a bizarre and um really weird idea to wrap your head around for a modern person. Yes, and I've tried to use 
different metaphors or comparisons. I've said um, penuma in the ancient world in medical theory and in science and in philosophy and even in popular thought is simply a very refined form of air or wind. And, but it's still physical. And I said, if you want to, so penuma is what caught what you're, you breathe in through your nose, your mouth, it goes to your brain. This is Galen, Galen's, the medical theorist, his stuff. He wrote a lot about this and your brain is like a refinery that refines air into penuma. And then penuma is sent by your brain throughout your body. And that's how you know to move your hand or to move your leg. It's penuma telling your parts of your body to move. And then when you touch something or if something pricks you and you feel pain, that's because penuma has moved from your hand, say, back to your brain and told your brain, hey, something's going on. Something's messed up here. We're being we're being hurt. And so I've said, if you think of what in the modern world, what in our world does that kind of work? Well, it's a kind of a combination of oxygen and electricity. And electricity is what moves throughout our nerves to communicate from the brain to the parts of the body and to communicate from the parts of the body back to the brain. So that if you can wrap your imagination around what would be a combination of oxygen and electricity, that's the closest I can get in my imagination to what pneuma does in the ancient world. So to pull this all together, um, and this is going to set us up for the next bit quite nicely, um, the earliest Christian writings we have are maybe 20 years, maybe a little less, a little more, after the death of Jesus, from someone who claims to have experienced his risen body in some sort of way that you're describing, and then is also telling his followers, the churches he's founded, that there is a coming day of resurrection in which the dead will also be raised in this manner. Exactly. There has to be a continuity, according to Paul, and I think this is true for just about all of early Christianity. However you imagine Jesus's resurrected body happening, that will be the way Christians' resurrected bodies happen. Because happen. Jesus, in the words of Paul, and I, th- I think this is true for a lot of other ancient Christians, Jesus's resurrecting was simply the first fruits, he calls it, of those that sleep. Jesus's resurrection is only the first resurrection Every other resurrection will have to be like it. What's the bit with the the body? It, it will be laying a fleshly body and raised a pneumatic one. Which which verse is that? I'm blanking. It's in First Corinthians 15. Right, because that's an amazing passage. Because he goes, people have asked, do you get the same body back again when you're resurrected? Seems a fair question. And he literally goes, fool, no. It's yeah. Go well, ahead. Paul has to play. This is the funny thing about Paul is that. He wants to play both a continuity and a discontinuity. He wants to say it has to be the same body, but it's a body composed of different stuff. So he has to have continuity and discontinuity. And that's why he this wonderful metaphor of the seed and the flower. The seed and the flower. So, again, we, in fact, we, let's use modern ideas. We could say that a seed and the flower share the same DNA, but they don't look alike. 
They don't taste alike. They don't smell alike. But there's something continuous about it. That's the way Paul thinks about the pre-resurrected body and the post-resurrected body. But now later Christians, they will reject that, see? And so um, the Gospel of Luke, for example, says, no, 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 no. Jesus' resurrected body is not a pneuma, which he interprets as being a ghost. It's flesh and bone, is what he says. Luke doesn't use flesh and blood. He says flesh and bone. Jesus in his resurrection appears to his disciples and says, I'm not a pneuma. A pneuma doesn't have flesh and bone, as you see that I have. And give me a piece of fish to eat so I can (laughs) prove to you that I'm flesh and bone. Um. So, and then uh, uh, Tertullian, at at the end of the second century, he insists on this. He wrote a whole treatise on on the resurrection. And he insisted, no, 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 no. It's got to be a flesh body. It's got to be the same body that was put into the ground. But for none of these people, is it this, like, afterlife, spooky, different plane of reality type thing? No, no. For none of them is it what we would call supernatural. Or for, for none of them is it what we would call the immortality of the soul. Isn't, though, the seed and the flower, I always find that so creepy and unsettling. Like, the idea that after you die, something is going to grow out of your body that is not your body and is distinct from it. It's, it's weird, right? Especially to the modern mind. I'm glad, I'm glad that you find it creepy, because there's a whole lot in the New Testament that is creepy. Which is, this is not like the Sunday school version, like what they actually meant at the time. In Sunday school, you say, well, Aunt Martha died this last week, but she's not gone. Where is Aunt Martha? Well, her soul is safe in the arms of Jesus in heaven. Right. And it's all nice and clean. And it's not clean in the New Testament. No. No. So this, I've I've covered that ground because I then want to sneak up on Galatians 3.28, which is, if you talk to anyone, and I've had, I've had some good female friends who are, you know, devout believing Christians, but also sort of quite liberal and feminist and so on, and they'll always reference that single line of, in heaven there is no male and no female. But in terms of what Paul originally meant when he said, because what they're thinking is, you know, like the soul goes up to heaven and when it's in heaven, you know, it's not identical. It's um, whatever. Or or a thicker reading even would be a statement of fundamental equality, that, that God doesn't see differences in gender or something like that. Paul likely meant something much more specific about the nature of resurrected bodies in that, right? In terms of a historical reading of him. Yes. I think Paul, I think, I don't think Paul in that passage is talking so much about equality as he is androgyny. Um, that the, in the resurrection, the body is an androgynous body. Now, what I've tried to insist also that <clears throat> that doesn't mean that Paul believes that masculine and feminine are equal because elsewhere, like in first Corinthians 11, he talks about man as the head of woman as God is the head of Christ. And so even in the resurrection, I think Paul believes that individual bodies would be equal, but that's because he assumed that the femininity of a woman's body 
would kind of be sucked up into the masculinity of the resurrected body. So individual people would be equal after the resurrection. But that doesn't mean he thinks masculinity and femininity are equal. He still believes that masculinity as a principle is superior to femininity as a principle. It's just that 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 principle will be kind of so if you, you have to think about it this way. For Paul, the resurrected body is an androgynous body. But what that means is that it's a masculine body that has taken femininity up into itself. So I think I got this from your book. You said when we think about androgyny, we actually increasingly in the modern world, we are beginning to see sex as a spectrum, but we would see it as a horizontal spectrum where on the right you have masculine, on the, the left you have feminine or vice versa for that matter. And then, you know, you, it shades into it and in the middle you might have androgynous or intersex or whatever. Whereas for Paul, it's a hierarchical spectrum with maleness on the top and femaleness on the bottom. So the the ancients do recognize a spectrum of gender expression, but 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 it's a hierarchical spectrum of, of inferiority and superiority. In fact, that's that one of the most important things about understanding ancient notions of sexuality is you've got to get rid of dichotomies and go with poles. So one of the dichotomies is masculine and feminine. There's tons of in-betweens between masculine and feminine in the ancient world. And we're starting to recognize that more as we have people among us, even in churches, who say, I don't identify as either a man or a woman. I identify as intersex or, you know, I want to be called Z and here and they and these kinds of things and not he and she. So we're getting that. Um, in the ancient world, you have all of that all over the place. Um, you know, just look at art. Look how many depictions of androgynous beings there are in statues. Uh, you know, we, it, there's this wonderful statue of the, a lying down androgynous where if you look at the, the it's a lying down person, it's carved. And if you look at it from the back, it looks exactly like a woman. And then you go around the other side of it and it's got a penis and balls. Well, you know, they played with these notions of combinations and in-betweenness and androgyny all the time, much more than in the modern world. So, so they have these things and we're starting to re recognize these things as part of our culture also. But they didn't necessarily think of this as being equality. They, they, they had continuity, but still you almost never find women being put higher than men. So even in texts like the Acts of Thecla, at the end of it, um, it says, uh, you know, she becomes a man. She basically cutting her hair and dressing like a man, and she goes out and becomes an apostle. The reason she can become an apostle is because she, in a sense, denies her femininity and puts on masculinity. Or the end of the Gospel of Thomas, when the disciples say to Jesus, you can't let Mary Magdalene be one of us because she's a woman. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, women and men are equal. He says and said, I will make her male. Her, salva her salvation is dependent upon her being made male. Even as a woman. 
So, so one of the dichotomies we have to get rid of is the masculine-feminine dichotomy. That doesn't mean there's not a difference. It just means there's not a dichotomy. Dichotomy means two things cut by a difference. So get rid of dichotomy and keep difference. But the other thing we have to get rid of is the homosexual-heterosexual dichotomy. That didn't exist in the ancient world either. And so that really impacts upon how you think about sexual behavior in the ancient world. Let's get back to, um, let's put a flag in homosexual, heterosexual, and um, return to that in a sec. But let's just cover the ground we've covered thus far. When you get the no male, no female, he, number one, doesn't mean heaven as we think about it, as a sort of, you know, up in the clouds. He's talking about the physical resurrection of the dead. And when he says no male, no female, he means that physical resurrection. In a sense, women will become men, right? Or I'm probably glossing that a little. How would you put that better? Let's say women, women will become male. Right, okay. They will become... Oh, God. So think of it this way. In the ancient world... Feminine signified lack. It's something that they didn't have. Mm. Now, in the resurrection, all of a sudden they have what they didn't have. So it's almost like a a restoration, a restoring, an improvement. Yes, exactly. But they don't lose what they already had. Um. Well, think of it this way. They don't lose their vagina. They just get a dick of some sort. That, but, but it's they, a physical body, so that's, we're not, you're not being crashed there. That is what... No, 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 no. But see, they believe that men also have vaginas. Um, you're going to have to walk me through that one. So ancient gynecology, uh, and this is true for Galen or Serranus or several other... Um, scientists of the period, they believed that um, the penis and the scrotum were simply the ovaries and the vagina pushed out of the body by extra heat. Because male is associated, I know this bit, male is associated with warmth and hardness and um, dryness, and female is associated with coldness and dampness, right? Most often. Now, you will find some theorists in the ancient world who reverse that for some reason about different things, but most often that's true. The idea was that the fetus, if the woman's womb, the mother's womb, is warm enough, then the, then the organs inside the fetus of the baby will pop out, and then it'll be a boy. And if the womb is not warm enough then the organs will stay inside the body of the fetus. So, in fact, the, the words they use, they don't have a separate word for ovaries. Um, uh, they, you know, uh, they, they use the same... So both women and men have testicles. So this is weird, right? Because if you get the more radical elements of... Um the sort of social justice left, particularly as they talk about um, gender and transgender people, you'll get to people who say stuff that doesn't sound wholly dissimilar from this when they just start talking about human gender as pure spectrum 
and yeah. re- really try and navigate away from the male-female dichotomy. And what's what's really interesting about that is a lot of people, and I would guess a lot of religious conservatives, would look at that and go, well, that's crazy. Of course, men and women are real things. Of course, these are grounded in genetics and biology and whatever. But the people who wrote the Bible, at least certain parts of it, that would be a, a, a completely downward, have views of a gender spectrum that would put them right on the far left of how we think about it now. This is why I insist that even so some people don't like the term postmodern. I find it for me indispensable because it's, it's not pre-modern, but it has rejected certain assumptions of the modern era. The idea that the, these, these, the male and female can be two dichotomous things but equal to one another is a modern invention. It wasn't around before the 20th century. And what we're, and also the invention of heterosexuality and homosexuality, for crying out loud, it came around right around 1900. We can date, we can date the invention of the heterosexual. But what we wouldn't want, well, we assuming we have generally left-wing commitments to sort of social justice today, which we may or may not, and that might or might not be correct. But there's there's something both reassuring and very unsettling, because what you don't want to do is just strip it back and say, we reject the modern categories of uh, a male-female dichotomy, of a heterosexual-homosexual dichotomy, and, you know, the, whatever they thought in ancient Greece is right. One, because it is profoundly unscientific, but two... You know, from a social justice left point of view, the idea of this spectrum we like, but it's it's a vertical spectrum, not a horizontal one. And although they do recognise this, um, a, a number of different, like, like, like you say, a spectrum of gender expression, it is one in which the male is superior and there's just an overt misogyny to how they think about perceived female traits, both in women and men, Right. This is why the term for me, postmodernism, is so important, because it, it means that I'm not going back to pre-modernism. I don't want the pre-modern. I want to go through the modern. I want to learn from the modern. And one of the most important things to learn from the modern is spectrum, may uh, not, not dichotomy, but equality. So, you know, you, you don't reject the idea of equality that we granted get from the modern world. You know, uh, the ancients didn't know anything about all this. Well, the, the radical Democrats in Athens talked about equality a lot, but they never really pushed for an equality of the sexes, um, even in Athens. So um, we, what we want to do, what makes us not pre-modern is that we've learned from the modern, and we want to retain some aspects of the modern. And a couple of those aspects of the modern we really want to retain is democracy, equality, uh, gender equality, but we we try to keep those things without holding on to the bad things of modernity. And what that means is we actually go 
to the pre-modern to pick and choose. We this is what postmodernism is. It's eclectic. It's it's bricolage is the French term. You know, we're we're choosing different kinds of things from the pre-modern, but we're not rejecting everything from the modern. We don't want to reject science, for example. We don't want to have you know pre-modern science. We want science. We want history. We want historiography. We want geology. We want geography. So we don't want to reject the modern. What we want to do is liberate ourselves from the parts of the modern that we uh, find limiting. And sometimes going to the pre-modern is a useful resource. It just, it just reading the Bible helps your imagination. This stuff is so weird, right? Like yes. this is. <laughs> This is they don't. This is not what they cover in Sunday school. I'm not being like nuts. This is like so. I'm British. They do prayer in school over there, and you learn about baby Jesus in the main manger and all that. This is just completely different ballpark stuff. Well, that's what that's what that's what I do. <laughs> for crying out loud, I'm I'm not playing in their ballpark anymore. But I'm also not I'm also not playing in the ballpark of Paul completely. So I insist that it helps me as a historian to know that Paul still thinks that male is superior to female in the same, th- the same way that God is superior to Jesus, which, again, makes Paul a little bit of a heretic, right? By the standards of modern Christianity. Yeah. Um, according to good Orthodox Christianity, God, the Father, and Jesus are equals. Paul still believes that God is superior to Jesus, male is superior to female. Um, and man is superior to woman. Um, I, I, I do have one final question on the female thing before we get lost in, in postmodernism. Um, but here's, here's my question. This is a genuine question. Like, I don't know the answer to it. Um, it's not just in the Bible. In the whole ancient world, it's overtly misogynistic. Like, like you say, there's a spectrum, but the man is at the top, right? And it, all of ancient Greek thought. You're, well, not necessarily the man is at the top. But the male is at the top because you have some, you have some men who are really women, and they're inferior. But so we might separate gender and gender expression in the modern world. Um, but they they would always view the expression the the gender expression of of maleness as superior. And even men are judged by the extent to which they're sort of being women. There's a word, right, which is sort of like sissy or feminine man, which yes. is like the, the, the worst. What's the word I'm thinking of? It's in your book. There are several. Um, um, is it, is it mal- Malakos? Malakos, yeah. Malakos is one of them. That's the Greek. It, it, malakos means soft, quite literally. But it can mean um, anything related to the effeminate. But soft in the sense of female. So, so it's like you might call someone a pussy today or something like that. Absolutely. That's exactly what it means. Okay. And interesting. Okay. So there's that whole, like, it's just baked into the whole worldview and the categories and concepts that they use. But then here's my question. Taking that into account, what do we make of the outsized role that women seem to have in the Bible? So all of the Gospels, I think, mention the female followers of Jesus um, and mention Mary Magdalene, and we can get into the whole Da Vinci thing, Da Vinci Code thing, if we want. But then, no, yeah. But then, <laughs> even Paul, who is sort of known as not liking women, 
um, refers in Romans, I believe, to a woman as an apostle. It does, you get these little glimmers, which almost are like tantalizingly suggestive of female leadership in the early church. What do we, what are we to make of this? There was definitely female leadership in the early church. Um, and there are lots of different theories about how that changed. Um, that as the church became more sort of mature and male and institutionalized, that women were increasingly pushed to the side. But the main thing is you can't have a simple narrative. Uh, one of the older narratives that was very popular in the 70s among certain feminist biblical scholars was that the Jesus movement was much more egalitarian, uh, so that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, another Mary, um, and they can, you can name different names of women, mainly from the Gospel of Luke, but from other Gospels also. These women, obviously. But notice, almost every scholar who works in the historic of Jesus believes that Jesus actually did appoint 12 special disciples. They're all men. Um, you know, Dan, what's his name, notwithstanding. Um, and, and so why would, and most people think that Jesus appointed these 12 men. Why 12? Well, because they're going to represent, the, they're going to judge, they're going to be head of the 12 restored tribes of Israel, which have disappeared by Jesus' time. There's only two tribes of Israel that are recognizable by Jesus' time. So one of the apocalyptic messages about the end of the time in the kingdom is that the 12 tribes of Israel will be restored but, and so the 12 disciples that Jesus appoints were going to be the head of those 12 tribes, and they're all men. So you can't make G the whole Jesus movement an egalitarian gender movement either. But that doesn't mean that Paul doesn't believe that there's a woman apostle. Junia, in Romans 16, he calls an apostle. And this is obviously a woman's name. So, and Paul doesn't strike. This doesn't seem made up. It doesn't like. It seems very implausible to me that Paul would recognize a woman in a leadership role just to be nice, right? Like he, th that seems historical, right? Yes, I think I think it's a, a historical that Paul. It's not just Junia. There are other people that other women's names that Paul mentions that he obviously sees as both leaders of the church and patrons of the church. That is, these are probably wealthier women or women of some kind of means. And they host uh, house churches in their houses, which means if they're a little bit higher class than the lowest class. They might not be rich, but they at least can own a house uh, or occupy a house that has a big enough dining room to host, say, 20 members of the house church. So that, and uh, Paul mentions, um, Prisca's name, the woman of the husband, Aquila and Prisca, he mentions her name before Aquila's name, whereas Acts of the Apostles mentions his name before her name. Most scholars would say Paul's doing that because he recognizes that she's actually the more important of the two. So there, there are lots of indications that a lot of the, rep, the bad rep that Paul has gotten about misogyny comes from Colossians and Ephesians. Which are not actually his works, right? Exactly. They're, they're, they're the, the, the pastoral epistles, or First and Second Timothy and Titus. You know, the, the famous passages where 
passage where Paul, where Paul is supposed to say, I don't allow women to speak in the church. Women have to keep complete silence in the church. That's not in Paul's letters. That's or, or is not in his undisputed letters. That's in, you know, first Timothy or second Timothy and Titus. So um, a lot of the really worst rep that Paul has gotten by being misogynist comes really from the letters written after he's gone. Um, that that doesn't mean we should make Paul a complete gender egalitarian, though. What I'm trying to say is these things are more complicated than that. I did actually have something to say on the is it is it Timothy the bit about I I will not tolerate a woman to to have authority over me or to teach. Um, um, I had something to say about that, and I wanted your thoughts on this, because, okay, so accepting that that's a later thing, you do, and this is me pretending to be a historian, which I'm not, right, but in, in, in a lot of the ancient writings, and you see it in the ancient Greek a lot, you find just what I think of as, like, hints of real powerful expressions of female agency precisely in the male authors, and pretty much we only have male authors, telling them not to do that, right? right. And it, it's, there's rules, that, that there's things that you say only because somebody's tried to do it. I remember in my first job, there was a rule that we all had to sign a contract on that we would not keep drugs in the bottom locking drawer of our desk. Right. That is a rule that was there because somebody did that, right? Yeah. And I don't need to know the story to know there was another rule that you um, have to be clothed at all times in the office. Again, I don't need to know the story to know that there is a story there, you know? And when I read the, the, the women shall not teach in church, I, that to me seems to be evidence that they were trying to. Does that make sense? Yes, but we don't need to go there. You don't have to do an argument by negation. Because remember, a whole lot of stuff that different cultures forbid is because of people's, I don't know if you want to call it unconscious or subconscious fear that it might happen. This is true. Um, it's not proof positive. It's a plausibility argument. So where, we, where, we, where you need to go to show that there were women who were doing these kinds of things, we, have, we just have positive evidence. Yeah. So the story becomes, Paul, yes, would be a misogynist by today's standards, but it does seem there were women in close proximity to the historical Jesus. We do have positive evidence of women exercising leadership roles maybe a couple of decades after his death. But then when you get to the later letters, you can begin to see the reaction against that and people shutting it down and saying, no, no more, no more of this, right? But it, but it, it didn't really ever win out. So, you know, even in the second century, you get the Montanist controversy where you have Montanus who's you know a male but he has these two women who uh, have super super important leadership uh, roles in his movement and they're considered prophets and you know they prophesy and so then you have people like Tertullian saying we got to kick the Montanists out of the church uh, so it's a battle um, and you get it all the way through history. There's always a, an undercurrent of important women. And there's always an overcurrent of people trying to suppress it. Okay, I am going to have to ask 
I, I, I've got you on the line. I'm going to have to ask the, the Da Vinci Code question. Mary Magdalene. What She was a real... Like, Mary Magdalene. Yeah. We can say that this was a real person historically, though, right? And was close to Jesus. I think so, yeah. I think she's a historical person. Now, what happens is the later traditions get everything mangled. Um, so, for example, if you go to an art gallery, uh, Mary Magdalene will be depicted in red, and she will have... A, a jar of ointment and that's because it's been interpreted later so what happens is there's a story in difference of the gospels in fact i think all four of the gospels where some woman comes in and either washes jesus feet or anoints his head with oil or anoints his feet with oil and in none of the gospels is that ever said to be mary magdalene but that's been all kind of, in Christian tradition, it's been all sloshed together. So that Mary Magdalene is supposed to be a former prostitute, which there's no nothing in the Bible that she was. But this bit of the Da Vinci Code is right, right? It's Pope Gregory the whatever in the Middle Ages makes that connection of Mary Magdalene with the prostitute and the feet-washing woman that didn't exist until that point. That That's historical, right? I don't think you can point to Gregory himself as the one who invents it. I think it grows up a bit more authentically out of Christian tradition. People are always trying to harmonize the Gospels. And so they see, you know, this woman, one of the Gospels, Luke, I think, says that Mary Magdalene did have demons driven out of her. So she had some kind of exorcism. But in none of the Gospels is Mary Magdalene identified as the one who anoints Jesus. None of them. And yet that becomes accepted tradition. So this is what happens in all this kind of stuff. There's just things in tradition just get all mangled together. Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. If you enjoy this show, there's a few ways you can support it. Um, sharing on social media always really, really helps. Um, so I'll appeal to you if you've already shared an episode in the past consider sharing this episode. It's, you know, we've gone from, I think in the first week, four people listened to the first episode all the way through to something like 10,000 an episode now, at least in the thousands, maybe in the tens of thousands. Really, almost all of that close, basically all of it is from people sharing. So it's really, really um, important for us to get people to share. So if you thought this was interesting, provocative, different, please go ahead and hit that share button. If you're able to support in a more monetary way, you can sponsor us on Patreon. And just check out patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast, and you can sponsor us at whatever level seems right to you. I've been recommending $2 an episode, but that's a suggestion. If you can give more, that's terrific. If you can only do a dollar even, that would still be great. And like I say, Patreon support is the only form of funding that this show gets, and there are various, you know, hosting costs, whatever, associated with it, as well as, you know, just a huge amount of time on my part, which I love doing. Um, I really do, and I'd, you know, if I could even just break even doing it, that would be terrific. So, Please do sponsors on Patreon, and another advantage of that is it allows me to cover my costs without doing ads on the show, because I think ads... You know, imagine if, like, 
a few times in the conversation you just listened to, I interrupted it to sell you a mattress. I, I, I think it would just bring the quality of it way down, right? So those are two really simple ways that you can support the show. Share on social media and sponsors on Patreon. Both are really welcome, and a big, big, big thank you to anyone who's done either of those things. You're making this show possible to go out to the number of people it does, and to go out for free and ad-free, so thank you so much. Next week will be the second part with Dale Martin. We'll get into questions of Jesus' sexuality, and of various forms of sexual morality and sexual ethics in the ancient world and we'll also talk about our own views of the family and what's ultimately normative in the ethics of sexual life so that was a really challenging but really interesting conversation so i hope you'll check that out and then after that i'll probably get back and i'll hopefully have my finale of the libertarian series done and over that period i'm arranging and scheduling um more interviews so i'll announce them on twitter and facebook as they come out and again you can always follow me on twitter or facebook to get those updates um my twitter handle uh facebook page I think there's a couple of other things you can follow us on. Um, they're all on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So just check all of that out. And yeah, thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll return next week. <laughs>